All right, it is so good to be here. Your pastor is a dear friend of mine, and I'm excited to be here except for the Ohio weather, because I live in Orlando, Florida. All right, as the pastor said, this is going to be the complete history of the King James Bible in 50 minutes or less. Now, I know a little bit about the history of the King James Bible. I've spent 25 years researching and writing on the history and text of the King James Bible. And this is based on my study of all the primary and secondary source material. I've also written three books on the King James Bible. So the following lesson has been greatly condensed and adapted from my three-part PowerPoint lecture on the history of the King James Bible. My focus is going to be on the important things about the history of the King James Bible. And I encourage you to attend the lectures, and especially to be able to look through the mass of facsimile editions and copies of old Bibles and manuscripts that I'll have on display that relate to the history of the King James Bible. All right, there's 12 things we want to look at this morning. The Church of England, King James the Hampton Court Conference, the title of the King James Bible, the original tongues, the former translations, the Bishop's Bible Connection, the King James Translators, the translation companies, the making of the King James Bible, the 1611 King James Bible, and then after 1611. So first of all, the Church of England. You can't understand the history of the King James Bible without a little knowledge of English church history. So England at this time, like most of Europe, was a Catholic country. Henry VIII was a loyal Catholic. The Protestant Reformation was taking place in Europe. In 1534, the Act of Supremacy in England, by that act, Henry VIII broke with the Pope. Now, he didn't break with the Pope over doctrine, but because he wanted a divorce. Most of us are familiar with the story of him and all his wives. Now, in the Act of Supremacy, Parliament recognized Henry as the supreme head of the Church of England. And that relationship continues to this day. The union of church and state is one of the great evils of church, church history and one of the great heresies of Christianity. Nevertheless, God used that to his advantage to give us the King James Bible. So the Reformation firmly takes hold in England in spite of Henry VIII. And he was followed by Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth. And none of them had any heirs. So the throne of England passed to King James. So King James, who was he? He had been king of Scotland since 1567. He was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. He was from the Stuart dynasty. He was crowned King of England in 1603 because he was related to the Tudor dynasty. He was actually the great-grandson of the sister of Henry VIII. King James was educated. He wrote several books. He was Protestant. He was theologically minded. He was a firm believer in the divine right of kings and the Episcopal form of government of the Church of England. 
But God used King James, just like he used King Nebuchadnezzar, just like he used King Cyrus. The case for the King James Bible does not depend on the character of King James. All right, number three, the Hampton Court Conference. Soon after King James took the throne, there was a conference held at Hampton Court Palace. This was January in 1604. It was a three-day conference where the king met with his advisors, bishops, some of whom later became translators of the Bible. Also in attendance were some Puritans. The Puritans wanted to purify and reform the Church of England. They wanted to make it less Roman Catholic. They wanted a more complete reformation. They objected to certain ceremonies. Now, they weren't Baptists by any means, but they definitely were not Roman Catholic. So the subject of the Hampton Court Conference was not a new Bible. It was church reforms. Not much became of this conference. But the second day, a Puritan named John Reynolds proposed a new translation of the Bible. The king liked the idea, and work began a few months later. That is the birth of the King James Bible, January 1604, Hampton Court Conference. If that had not happened, the Hampton Court Conference would just be lost to history. Nobody would care anything about it. All right, the title of the King James Bible. Here's the original title. The Holy Bible containing the Old Testament and the New. Newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment. It wasn't called the King James Bible. It wasn't called the King James Version. Early on, though, it was referenced by various names. And the main two things it was called, number one, King James's Bible was a familiar title. But as early as 1620, it was called the Authorized Version. The Authorized Version. All right, the original tongues. I read you the title, and the title mentioned the original tongues. The original tongues, as you know, are Greek and Hebrew. All right, Hebrew. There are hundreds of Hebrew manuscripts. The first printed Hebrew Bible, which of course is just the Old Testament, was printed in Italy in 1488. Then in 1517 and 1525, you have what's called rabbinic Bibles that are printed. And this is the Hebrew Bible with the text and notes and comments of the rabbis. All right, then in the case of Greek, it's a little different. You have thousands of Greek manuscripts. And there are three main editions of the Greek New Testament that were compiled based on the readings in manuscripts. And that would be Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. Erasmus had five editions of the Greek New Testament from 1516 to 1535. And it was a parallel Greek and English. Then Eras uh, Stephanus had four editions from 1546 to 1551. The last edition of Stephanus divided the chapters into verses. And that's where that came from in the New Testament. Then you have Beza. Beza had four, four editions from 1565 to 1598. 
And these were parallel Greek, Latin, and Latin Vulgate, all in three columns on the page. Now, Beza's fourth edition, 1598, was certainly used by the King James translators. However, one of the greatest myths that you'll ever encounter is that the King James translators took Beza's fourth edition, opened it up, and started translating. That's not how it worked, as you'll see if you can come to the lectures uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. All right, another thing mentioned in the title was the former translations. The former translations. There were 15 rules given to the King James translators. Two of these rules relate to the former translations. I'm going to read those two rules for you. Number one, the ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. Then you also have Rule 14 that relates to the former translations. These translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible, namely Tyndale's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, Whitchurch's, and Geneva. Now, let's talk about these former translations in more detail. First of all, the Tyndale Bible. William Tyndale was the father of the English Bible, not John Wycliffe. Now, Wycliffe was a reformer. He lived about 100 years before Tyndale. And at this time, the Bible was forbidden to be translated into English. So Wycliffe is identified with the English translation of the Bible that bears his name. But there is no definitive evidence of his active participation in the work of translation. So the so-called Wycliffe Bible was translated into English from Latin, not Greek and Hebrew, around 1382 and then again in 1388. So Tyndale was the father of the English Bible. He was educated at Oxford. He knew seven or eight languages. In 1523, he tried and failed to get the Bishop of London to aid him in translating the Bible into English. He moved to Germany and began printing the New Testament in 1525. He had to flee suddenly in the middle of printing to avoid arrest by the authorities. So he didn't give up. He went to another city. And in 1526, Tyndale had printed the first complete English New Testament translated from the Greek. Now, this eventually cost him his life. These Bibles had to be smuggled into England. They were prohibited in, in England. They were public burnings. Only three copies remain of that original New Testament, 1526. So Tyndale then moved to Antwerp in modern-day Belgium, and he wrote several other books, and he worked on Bible translation. He did part of the Old Testament. He did the Pentateuch. He did Jonah, and he did Joshua through Second Chronicles. And then he also revised his New Testament in 1534 and again in 1535. Now, in 1535, Tyndale was betrayed by another Englishman, he was imprisoned in a castle in Belgium near Brussels for over a year. He was condemned as a heretic. He was strangled and he was burnt at the stake in 1536. 
His last words were recorded as, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, why would he have to make a statement like that? Church and state. Everything was church and state. If you wanted to get a Bible done, it had to get approved by the state. Now, Tyndale influenced the English language and all future English Bibles. About 70% of our authorized version is William Tyndale. All right, then you have the Coverdale Bible. Miles Coverdale was an English reformer. He is second to Tyndale in importance as it relates to the English Bible. In 1535, he published the first complete English Bible. It was based on Tyndale in the New Testament and then German and Latin Bibles. It was printed abroad and smuggled into England. It had a dedication to Henry VIII. And then in 1537, he had a revised edition, the second printing, of the 1537 revised edition of Coverdale, received the license of the king. One year after Tyndale was put to death to try to get the Bible in the hands of the English people. All right, then you have the Matthew Bible. We're looking at the former translations, right, that are mentioned in the uh, the title. The next one is the Matthew Bible. Thomas Matthew is a pseudonym of John Rogers. He was an English reformer. He was a friend of Tyndale. He was martyred during the reign of Bloody Mary. Now, in 1537, he put out the Matthew Bible. It's based on Tyndale in the New Testament. The Old Testament is based on the Tyndale Old Testament books that that he had translated. Remember, it wasn't the complete Old Testament. So the rest of the Old Testament was based on Coverdale. It had a dedication to Henry VIII. And the Matthew Bible was actually licensed by the king. And there's a statement at the bottom of the title page that says it's licensed by the king. All right, then you have the Great Bible. This is a large-sized Bible. It's a revision of the Matthew Bible by Coverdale. So Coverdale didn't revise his own Bible. He revised what he thought was superior, the Matthew Bible. And it was followed by three more editions in 1540. The first was 1539, so three more in 1540, three more in 1541. The title page of the Great Bible has a woodcut of Henry VIII giving copies of the Bible to Thomas Cromwell, his chief secretary, and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And then another image of Cromwell and Cranmer giving the Bible to the clergy and the nobility. So... Beginning with the 1540 edition, there was also a prologue written by Cramner that was included in the Bible. Then you have the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was translated by English exiles in Geneva, Switzerland, during the reign in England of Bloody Mary. The Geneva Bible was the work of William Whittingham and at least five others, including Miles Coverdale. It was published in 1560. There were many printings and editions up until 1644. It had a dedication to Queen Elizabeth. It had extensive introductions, notes, and annotations. The New Testament of the Geneva Bible was based on the 1557 New Testament of William Whittingham that he undertook himself. 
It followed Whittingham in four important respects. It was printed in Roman type. It used italics to represent words not in the original languages. The chapters were all divided into verses. And each verse began on a new line. All right, then you have the Bishop's Bible. Now, the Bishop's Bible was the first translation by a large group. And the men in this, in this large group, they translated individual books. The Bishop's Bible was overseen by Archbishop Matthew Parker. Most of the translators were bishops in the Church of England. That's why it was called the Bishop's Bible. Now, there were several failed attempts in English history of the bishops to translate a Bible, but this one succeeded. There, uh, 1568 was the first edition. There were 18 editions. The last one was 1602, which is significant in its own right. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. The Bishop's Bible had an engraving of Queen Elizabeth on the title page. However, there was no dedication to the queen, and there was no license from the queen. It was actually authorized by the bishops. Now, there were some rules given to the translators, and some of these rules parallel the rules given to the King James translators. The Bishop's Bible was based on the Great Bible. It even contained Cramner's prologue from the Great Bible. The text was in black letter, but it did follow the Geneva Bible in dividing the chapters into verses and beginning each verse on a new line. Some familiar phrases from our authorized version originate in the Bishop's Bible. All right, so number seven, what is the connection between the Bishop's Bible and the King James Bible? There are six direct connections between the Bishop's and the King James that I want to mention. You cannot fully understand the history of the King James Bible without a knowledge of the history of the Bishop's Bible and its connection to the King James Bible. So right away you need to understand this. The King James was a translation and a revision. All right. There are six direct connections. Number one, the translator's rules manuscript. I read you Rule 1 and Rule 14 a few minutes ago. Those rules specifically mention that the King James Bible was based on the Bishop's Bible. All right, number two, Barker's Bill. Robert Barker was the official king's printer. He printed the Bishop's Bible and then he printed the authorized version. He supplied 40 large church Bibles for the use of the translators. And we know this because he submitted a bill to the king dated May 10, 1605. These church Bibles would have been copies of the 1602 Bishop's Bible. All right, number three, third connection. Samuel Ward's notebook. The King James translator, Samuel Ward, he was assigned to translate the Apocrypha. A notebook of his contains the earliest known draft of any part of the King James Bible. It was only recently discovered. It's 70 pages long. 
It contains notes on one complete apocryphal book and two chapters of another. Uh, the way it's formatted is, is this. It has a verse number followed by a quotation from the Bishop's Bible. And then after that, you will have an alternate English translation of how he was going to revise that phrase in the Bishop's Bible. All right, number four, fourth connection between the bishops and the King James. Manuscript 98. What in the world is that? This is a 208-page manuscript in the Lambeth Palace Library. It is the work of the company of translators who worked on the epistles. It contains a proposed biblical text at an early stage in the translation process. It is the first rough draft of the King James translators on the epistles. It has corrected verses from the Bishop's Bible, written out with numbered blank spaces for verses that were to be left unchanged. It closely follows the syntax of the Bishop's Bible. All right, number five, the Bodleian Bishop's Bible. A bishop's Bible at Oxford, the Bodleian Library, survives. It's one of those 40 large church Bibles supplied by Robert Barker, the printer, to the translators. It's a 1602 bishop's Bible with corrections in the text and annotations in the margins made by the King James translators. And these things indicate changes that they wanted to make to the Bishop's Bible. It represents the work of the King James translators at a later stage in the process than Manuscript 98. All right, number six, the sixth connection between the bishops and the King James is simply the internal evidence. If you take the New Testament of the 1602 Bishop's Bible, and you compare it with the New Testament of the 1611 King James Bible, you'll find that 26.4% of the verses read exactly alike. 91% of the text is approximately the same. So those are the six connections between the Bishop's Bible and the King James Bible. All right, the translators... Number eight, the translators. In July 1604, there's a letter that King James wrote, and he mentions in this letter that he appointed 54 learned men, that's his phrase, as translators. And he also sought the assistance of other learned men throughout the land to aid in translating the Bible. Now, the King James translators were indeed learned men. They were the greatest Hebrew and Greek scholars of their day, but of course also Latin and many other languages. Now, of the 47 men listed on manuscripts containing the names of the translators, there's, there's only 47. However, we do know of other men not listed who did have a part in the translation. The King James translators spoke of themselves in their dedication and their preface to, to the Bible. 
So they were the greatest scholars in the world, but what did they say about themselves? They said, we are poor instruments to make God's holy truth to be yet more and more known unto the people. Compare that with these modern scholars that do these modern versions. You know, they're so full of themselves and puffed up with how great scholars they are, how they can just correct the, the King James Bible that's God, God's honored for 400 years. So the King James translators weren't full of themselves like, like these modern translators. Now, in 1650, you have the very first attempt to provide biographical information about the King James translators, 1650. And, of course, there's many books that have been written since then about the translators. All right, number nine, if you're keeping track, the translation companies. The King James translators were divided into six companies. These companies met at three locations, Westminster, Cambridge, and Oxford. Westminster refers to Westminster Abbey. That's the English National Church adjacent to the Palace of Westminster. The church is directly responsible to the monarch, church and state. Now, Cambridge and Oxford, you, you may know, are the, uh, the oldest and most prestigious universities in, in Great Britain. All right, there were six companies. Here are the assignments. The first Westminster company... They translated Genesis through 2 Kings. The second Westminster company translated Romans through Jude. The first Cambridge company, 1 Chronicles through Song of Solomon. The second Cambridge company, the Apocrypha. The first Oxford company, Isaiah through Malachi. The second Oxford company, Matthew through Acts and Revelation. Now, Archbishop Richard Bancroft was the chief overseer of the King James Bible. He had attended the Hampton Court Conference, and he was actually the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1604 until his death in 1610. So the man that overseed it never lived to see the finished product. All right. Number 10, the making of the King James Bible. There are extant some original letters, documents, and manuscripts that relate in some way to the work of the King James translators. I discuss all that are known in my book, King James, His Bible, and Its Translators. There are seven major pieces of evidence that I want to mention right now, and they give us some insight as to how the translators transformed the 1602 Bishop's Bible into the 1611 Authorized Version. All right, number one, the translator's rules manuscript. There are seven copies that survive. They differ slightly in wording and spelling, most of these manuscripts also include the names of the translators and the company they served on. So that's the translator's rules. All right, number two, the English report to the Synod of Dort. The Synod of Dort was a council of the Dutch Reformed Church held in the Netherlands, and it was designed to settle the theological controversy between 
the Calvinists and the Armenians. There was a delegation from England that attended this conference. And at this conference, this was 1618, they issued a report to the Synod of Dort about the translation of the King James Bible. This report paraphrased some of the original rules given to the translators, and it added some other guidelines that we don't know about except from this report. So it supplies information about how the work was carried out that supplements the translator's rules, and it adds information about a general meeting of 12 translators for the final revision of the King James Bible. And it also tells us how two of the translators put the finishing touches on what became the authorized version. All right, number three, the making of the King James Bible. Number three, Samuel Ward's notebook. Now, this notebook that I mentioned a minute ago, it contains notes on one complete book of the Bible and two chapters of another. It has proposed revisions to the Bishop's Bible. What does it show us? It shows us a translator working individually on a particular book of the Bible. And then he would bring those results into his uh, company for everyone else to review. All right, number four, the making of the King James Bible. Number four, Manuscript 98 again. This is a proposed biblical text for Romans through Jude. It was made by the Westminster New Testament Company. It has corrected verses from the Bishop's Bible written out with blank space signifying verses in the Bishop's Bible that were to be left unchanged. It shows us the completed work on a first rough draft of the biblical books by a specific translation company. It gives us a text that is approximately halfway between the Bishop's Bible 1602 and the King James Bible 1611. Each biblical book begins on a new page. So in this manuscript, with each book beginning on a new page, that could be because they would take individual books and circulate them to, to members of the translation company or other translation companies to be reviewed. All right, the making of the King James Bible, number five. The Bodleian Bishop's Bible again. This is the only surviving copy of the 40 large church Bibles that the printer supplied to the translators. It's a 1602 Bishop's Bible with annotations made by the translators that indicate changes to be made to the Bishop's Bible. Now, the New Testament annotations record two stages of revision by the Oxford New Testament Company of Translators. This shows us how they went over their work a second time. The Old Testament annotations represent the work of a single point, combining the work of the First Westminster, First Cambridge, and First Oxford companies. So that shows us how the companies would work together. All right, number six. The biography of John Boyce. Who's John Boyce? He's a King James translator. A friend of his wrote a biography of John Boyce because he was the most important translator. He served on the second Cambridge company. 
This biography of John Boyce is important, not just because of the information it tells us about John Boyce, but because it has four paragraphs in this biography that relate to the work of John Boyce translating the King James Bible. It provides information about the making of the King James Bible that no other source does. It also mentions the notes that John Boyce took of the final meeting of the 12 translators. And John Boyce kept those notes, we are told, till his dying day because he realized how important they were going to be. And they were lost to history for many years. And then they were rediscovered. And I'll tell you about that during the week. All right. Now, the John Boyce notes, number seven. At the general meeting of 12 translators for the final revision of the King James Bible, John Boyce took 39 pages of notes on 498 different items. And this covered 480 verses in the Epistles and Revelation. It's written mainly in Latin with some Greek and English as well. The notes show us the Greek text being criticized and analyzed and alternative English translations being compared by the translators. It tells us more about how the translators thought than about how they did their final revision work. All right, number 11, the 1611 King James Bible. We know it was published in 1611. We do not know the date. We don't even know the month. The King James Bible was actually larger in size than the Great Bible. It had 1,464 pages. It had a general title page. Uh, this was from a copper plate engraving with the title in the center, which I read you earlier, and emblems of the Trinity at the top and the four gospel writers in the corners. Very elaborate title page. I'm sure you, you've seen it. There are 34 preliminary pages after the title page. You have a dedication to the king. You have the translator's preface. You have a calendar, an almanac, an Easter table, a lectionary, and the table of contents. Then you have the genealogies and a map, 40 extra pages of material that was inserted after the regular preliminary material and before Genesis. All right, then in the New Testament, it has its own title page, and this was a woodcut with the title in the center, surrounded by the four gospel writers with emblems of the Trinity at the top. The pages were uh, 59 lines to a column, two columns on a page. The text was in black letter, making it difficult for us to read. It had Roman type elsewhere. So it didn't have italics. It had Roman type to represent words not in the uh, Greek and Hebrew. The text is divided in the verses. Each verse begins on a new line. The page headers contain brief mention of subject, the subject of each page. The chapters begin with summaries. There are no notes in the King James Bible. In the margins, you'll find cross-references. You'll find literal translations of Greek and Hebrew words. You'll find alternate English renderings. 
and occasionally some miscellaneous information, but no notes. Remember, the Geneva Bible was full of notes, and that offended the king and, and other people. So the King James Bible originally had no notes. All right, number 12, after 1611. After 1611, the king's printer printed four more large folio editions of the King James Bible. 1613, 1617, 1634, and 1640. These were also in black letter type. There was some modernization of the type beginning in the 1640 edition, but not much. There were also many separate New Testaments and smaller sized Bibles that were published in black letter or Roman type during this period. Now, what we're mainly concerned about are the Cambridge editions, 1629, puts out its own edition of the King James Bible that further uh, modernized the type and the spelling. That is the basis of our King James Bible that we have with us today, the Oxford 1769 edition edited by Blaney. Now, in conclusion, let me say this. If you want to see images of the people and places and old Bibles that I've talked about. Come to the lectures, Monday through Wednesday nights. If you want to hear more detail about what I've been talking about this morning, I know it was a lot of stuff to try to get a hold of, come to the lectures. If you want to see facsimile editions and copies of all these old Bibles that I've been talking about, and I mean all of them, and also manuscripts, copies of all the manuscripts that relate to the history of the King James Bible, come to the lectures. Now, the lectures, there's three lectures. The first one, Monday night, is called the Prehistory of the King James Bible. Tuesday night will be the Bishop's Bible and its relationship to the King James Bible. And Wednesday night will be the 1611 King James Bible and its editions. So I hope you can make all three lectures, and I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you, Pastor.